We're going to end our series on values today, our values as a congregation. Again, the Lordship of Christ, one, two, evangelism, three, discipleship, four, leadership development, and five, family. And we've been on family here for the last three or four weeks. We're going to end it with the sermon today out of the book of Ephesians where Paul talks about what family is like with respect to the body of Christ, both on the earth and in heaven. So turn with me over to the book of Ephesians, chapter 3. We're going to read verses 14 through 19. Ephesians chapter 3, 14 through 19. The title of the message is Family Revealed on Bended Knees. Family Revealed on Bended Knees. Ephesians 3, 14 through 19. Paul writes, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and earth derives its name that he would grant you, verse 16, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man, so that that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, verse 19, and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Lord, help us as we study. I want to talk to you about four things from this. First, what it means to have a family that that is transdimensional. A couple of different places. Two, what it means to be fortified on the inside. Three, how we need to have a fresh realization of the abiding, indwelling Christ. And four, what it means to be firmly rooted in love. Let me give you the background to what Paul is trying to convey here. The entire entire message letter to the church at Ephesus is about coming together. He's dealing with two different groups of people in the same congregation. Different ethnicities, different backgrounds, different cultures, different history, different everything. Jews and Gentiles. Gentiles are everybody in the world, mostly us in this room, who are not Jewish. And God had given him, meaning Paul, a mission to go out and reach us, specifically folks that didn't come from Abraham, weren't a part of the Jewish lineage. And the challenge was not only reaching us, but then incorporating us into a a predominantly Jewish faith. I realized that it seems to be antithetical today to talk talk about Christianity and, and Judaism being one, but they were in the first century that 90% in the first 10 years of the believers who were Christians were Jewish. The entire church, which was 20,000 believers in Jerusalem, were Jewish. And it was the unusual thing if a Gentile or somebody who was not fully Jewish was really integrated into the life of the people of God. But but, But Paul was called to go out and minister to these people, us, and, and bring them in because God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. He didn't just love the Jewish world. And he had a revelation about what that meant. And, and so his intentionality, his focus on reaching the Gentile community made some things occur in the church that he, he had to address. Meaning the church would, would say, should we have a... a a Jewish service and then a Gentile service? What do we do about potluck dinners? 
Like when they, when, when they bring gumbo, can, can we eat it as Jewish people? I mean, he's got shrimp and pork sausage. I mean, can, can we, can, shouldn't they have their own potluck and we can do our kosher? I mean, they don't even know any of our history. When we say Isaiah, they say who? They don't know anything about what we know. Old covenant, they never had any covenant. So the Old Testament scriptures mean nothing. They know nothing of our, how do we work this? It was hard. Historically, culturally, it was hard. And so Paul was doing everything he possibly could in the book of Ephesus, Ephesians, to try to do what he can to bring them together. And so the second chapter concentrates on how he, he says that Christ and the cross brought the dividing wall down that separated Jew and Gentile and made them into one people. And we actually are one. We were, as Gentiles, grafted into the covenant. And the Jewish people thought maybe, okay, if they're grafted in, they're kind of second class. They were an afterthought in God. Obviously, he cares about the chosen, and that's us. But these Gentiles, you know, they're Johnny come lately. We really shouldn't regard them as having the same privileges as we do, really, should we? And Paul says, yes, you should. We are fellow heirs of the covenant. There's no difference between them and us. And when the Gentiles get there, they don't take away from you, you Jewish dear believers. God is big enough to give everything he needs to everybody who needs it without depriving one person when he gives to them of another. He's that big. Just FYI, when somebody gets what you believe was your promotion, they got theirs, not yours. God is big enough to give you yours and them theirs. Don't be so small in your thinking. Your God is big. So when they get theirs, rejoice because yours is coming. Yours is coming. He's working hard. And and then he says in, in chapter 10, I want you to know, this mystery which has been hidden from the ages, nobody's figured it out, but God revealed it, Paul says, to me. That nobody knew that the Lord was bringing all things back together to oneness. The Jewish people thought we were chosen, but they interpreted chosen as only. You can be chosen and not only. The thing is that God loves you so much that it makes you feel like you're only. That's how much he loves you. Because he's not distracted by anything else on the planet when he gives his attention to you. And yet when he gives his attention to you, he can give it to everything else on the planet. That's what makes him God. I can't do that. When my children would come to me and I'd tell them we're going out to dinner, they would all have the idea about where they wanted to go. One would say McDonald's, one would say Wendy's, one wanted a Happy Meal, one wanted this one. Can we go over here to Chick-fil-A? And and I said, quiet, one at a time. One at a time. Because I can't listen to everybody at once. God can listen to all seven and a half billion people at one time without being distracted from one against another. This is the distinction that makes him God. And so his love makes you feel like you're only. And that's special. But we can't think that we are only. You are not an only child. There are a lot of other brothers and sisters with whom you must relate. And this is what Paul is trying to get at. Jews, you've got to relate to the Gentile community. 
and the Gentile community, you got to relate to the Jewish community because we are the family of God. There aren't two families. There's one, and God wants us to be together. And he said, so this mystery was hidden from the ages, but had now been revealed to me, the very least of all the apostles. Talking about Ephesians 3, 8 through 12. The least of all the apostles. That I, make, I might make known this mystery to you all the church who are the people who are to reveal it to all of the principalities and powers that be. That is, that the manifold wisdom of God should now be made known to all of the authorities that be. Not just those that we know that are in human form. Governors, mayors, those who run states and, and, and countries. But to those authorities that are invisible. Those malevolent puppeteers that rule humanity. Though humanity thinks they are sovereign in their orientation, they are being ruled by a governor or governors whose intent is to destroy humanity by pitting humanity against one another. There is a devil and there are his minions and his generals that are doing what they can to try to destroy humanity and make it seem as if God is doing it. So he might get the blame. And why is the enemy so hard at work at this? Because he can't stand God, but he can't get to him. So he gets to the folk who are made in his image. He hates humanity because we remind him of the Father. Can't stand it. And when we get right, we do everything we can to try to tear apart his kingdom. So the sooner he can get us six feet under, the better. He's working it. He's called the God little g of this world. And he is manipulating humanity to destroy the planet and everybody on it. But the church has a role. In fact, it is the most powerful force in the earth. The church. There is not a government that is more powerful than the church. When the church does and is what it's supposed to do and be. When the church is what it's supposed to be and does what it's supposed to do, there is no more powerful institution on the planet. Let me revise that. There is no more powerful institution in the universe than the body of Christ. When we act like we're supposed to. When we don't, there is no more inept institution on the planet than the church. No more weak no more fallible group of people on the planet than the church. We don't do well when we are not in our mission or with our God. So he says, now this wisdom that has been hidden from the ages is to be made known through the church. And it's a manifold wisdom, he says in verse 10. I have been pointed an apostle so that the church might make known this manifold wisdom of God to the authorities that be. And the word manifold there is only used one time in the New Testament and it's here. Now it's used a lot in Greek. And specifically, the most notable case is when the Old Testament was translated into Greek. We call it the Septuagint. And it's in reference to when Joseph gave his son, excuse me, Jacob gave his son Joseph a coat of many colors. And it was called a polupoikolos, a coat of many colors. And here, Paul is saying that the church is to declare 
the many-colored wisdom of God to the principalities and powers that be. This is why it's important to build like we build, multi-ethnically. Because every time we are together, we proclaim something without saying a word. Our unity, our purpose, our intentionality to preserve relationship and to work through things ethnically makes it very unique on the planet. And when we come together, something is said before anybody says anything. And we speak it to the principalities and powers that do everything they possibly can to try to separate us from one another. Oh, it's not easy to build this way. It's hard enough to build homogeneously. Meaning with people who like the same food, who came from the same background, the same ethnicity. Shoot, there are black churches that break up over the color of carpet. Over how many parking spots with a Baptist white church they're going to be and who's going to have them? How close they're going to be to the building? There are stupid reasons where people who are just like one another, grew up in the same environment, can't stay together. It's hard to keep folk who are like one another together. Much more difficult is it to take the cross currents of culture and the possibility of, of long-standing offense and intentionally bring those people together? Not easy. But we have intentionally chosen this way to build because we think it's important that the church say something. That we declare what the manifold wisdom of God is to the principalities and powers that have tried to separate humanity one from another since the beginning. Adam and Eve, immediately upon sinning, separated from one another. No, they didn't divorce. But as soon as he blew it, God came in the garden. Hey, Adam, where are you? Uh, yeah, we, we, uh, we, we're hiding. Why, why are you hiding? Did, did, did you eat from the tree? Well, about that. Um, yeah, you see what happened was, uh, you know that woman you gave me? <laughs> Where did he learn that? Sin makes you stupid. Sin makes you stupid. Just a little bit earlier, the first time he saw Eve, you know, he was asleep. God took the rib out, made the woman into, made from the rib a woman, and made into a woman the rib that he'd taken from the man, got it right. And then it says... That he, meaning God, brought the woman to the man, which meant that the Lord had begun a relationship or something with her all by himself for him to now bring the woman to the man. And when Adam saw her, he thought so much of her, he said, you bone of my bone, you flesh of my flesh. I'm going to change your name. I'm going to change your name. You are wool man. That's why we do the name change for the woman. Because he's so identified with her as being a part of him that he didn't want there to be any separation. That's the only reason you get our last name, ladies. is not for possession 
It's not for control. It's for identification. We love you that much. That's all it is. Now, if you want to keep yours, that's up to you, but don't not take mine. Don't do that. Don't do that. Not if you want to have a biblical marriage, one that identifies with one another deeply. But he had just said, you bone of my bone. Adam, where are you? Well, see that woman you gave me. What happened to, what happened to bone? Can you imagine? What, oh, you're going to throw me under the bus like that? Right, so quick. What happened to bone of my bone? What happened to bone of my bone? Flesh of my flesh. We separate quick. We separate quick. It takes a lot of effort to bring people together and help them stay together. Paul says, this is the purpose for which I have established my ministry, to bring the most difficult groups of people who historically have never liked one another together and make them one so that something is said about God's intentionality on the planet and what he wants to do with his family. We are his family. It's not just a good idea of us coming together thinking, let's try something. Anybody who wants to do that, try something else, please. Building this way is too hard. And may I say (laughs) that the things we say together are much more substantive and long-lasting than anybody else who doesn't say them as well as we do. Somebody who came to our church, a dear friend of mine, part of our staff as an adjunct pastor here, Stephen Mansfield, got up in February and said some things. Boy, the emails started flowing. I got so many emails. Pastor, I just can't believe somebody would say that on Sunday morning. Is this church that is? I thought this church. I said, listen to me. I said, I'm sorry that you heard what you heard the way you heard it. I said, I know that man. He's my friend. I walk with him. And the beauty of our congregation is that I can have some folk who who can get up on the stage and and say something, and if it's not as right as it should be, I can fix it. And all of us can say, oh, this is a great church because they deal with stuff. They don't gloss over stuff. When something is not said as well as it should be said, then somebody can come up and fix it, and they can fix it with that person and make them better rather than ostracizing them and now making an enemy somebody who cannot integrate into our world. I believe in reconciliation at the deepest levels. So we've got people on staff. I, uh, Pastor Jim from North Carolina didn't grow up with black people, and it is evident. <laughs> Very evident. And so we have to have conversation, which makes all of us better, makes him better, makes you more tolerant and understanding. This is how we do what we do. And simply because somebody might say one thing, it doesn't define everything that we are. It simply means if it needs to be adjusted, we adjust it. That, these are the cross currents that we constantly have to deal with. And now the white folks who are a part of us grow up in their understanding of how to know what not to say. <laughs> you know, things like, you know, some of my best friends are black. Now, see, nobody ever explains to them why that doesn't bring you any credibility with me. Because they might be tolerating you just like me. They may not be your best friend. 
I understand what that means or what it doesn't mean. And then we black folks can begin to understand something about where the white folks are. And they don't exactly know. Are you African-American? Are you black? I know you're not colored. You're not colored. I get that. <laughs> but how do I work? How, what? I don't want to do something stupid. I don't want to say something stupid. Where else can you get this kind of conversation? Where else can we work like this? Within the bonds of family. It takes time. Nothing perfect ever happens in an environment like this. It's never pristine. It's always messy. But it's fixable. Are you listening to me? Paul said, I had to do this all the time. All the time. He was an amazing human being. But, but every time we fix something, the principalities and powers go, I thought I had them. I thought I had them. I thought I had them on that one little thing that wasn't said quite right. Mm-hmm. Half the church going to split right now, going to split. Oh, there they go again with that blood stuff, that forgiveness stuff, that understanding stuff. Huh? So here we go. Paul lays out all of that. And then he says, and because I realize what we are called to be for this reason, I pray. See, it's not enough to just work it by way of understanding. Our brains are wired sometimes too wrong to get the right information as it should go. Sometimes, even though something may be said well, how you hear it makes it divert in a different way in your mind. And it's received differently in your soul. And now you might be offended when somebody else wasn't. I preached the same message last service. Somebody came to me and said, I thought Stephen Matthew's message was great. (laughs) And he was black. I said, I know. I said, but not everybody hears the same way. And so Paul says, I got to pray because I don't even know if you're listening to the message I'm I'm writing now. I got to pray. I can't depend upon your heart being able to receive that which I'm saying in the spirit in which I'm saying it. I have to get on my knees and talk to my God because he's the only one that can fix the stuff my words can't. For this reason, I bow my knees. And you have no idea how much prayer over the last 30 has gone into making us us. So much. I mean, there's a lot of work. There's a lot of talk. There's a lot of effort. But most of it is prayer. God, keep us together. Help us to become something more than just a folk who are tolerant of one another and endure with one another. Help us to be one substantively. I bow my knees. And and, and it says not only before the Father, but he recognizes this, that there is... There's a trans-dimensional focus to our family. I bow my knees from the Father in heaven, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth derives its name. And and, and even though the word there is every in the Greek, contextually is probably better understood as, as meaning the entire, not the individual families on the earth that have nothing to do with Christianity, meaning they don't fall under the authority of the Father's realm. It meant those who happened to, to fit within his bounds as, as, as being called by his name. I bow my knees about this family, both in heaven and on earth. Meaning that there are folks in heaven that are a part of the family that are going to greet us when we walk in, into glory. They're going to embrace us. Uh, Paul, Paul, Paul's going to be there with you. He, I don't know how long the line's going to be, but he's going to say hello. Why? Because... You happen to be a part of his fruit. He had no idea anybody in North America would come to the knowledge of the truth. He didn't even know North America existed. But look at, we're here. 
we're here. And now North America happens to be the greatest resource for missions around the world. And we are his fruit. I imagine at some point, somewhere in the neighborhood of 10,000 years after he shakes every other Gentile's hands, he'll get to yours. (laughs) And say, welcome. You're part of my lineage. I'm so happy you're here. And we'll have conversation with our family up there. And I'm I'm, going to have a conversation with David. If I can get to him. And he did some amazing things. But I just want to talk to him about Goliath. I mean, we've heard the story so much, we almost forget how miraculous it was. I just want to talk to him about, dude, he was the greatest warrior in all the earth. He was nine feet tall. He had a, a spear whose spearhead was 15 pounds. Just the spearhead, not the shaft. The spearhead was 15 pounds, and the spear itself was about nine, ten feet. How strong do you have to be to throw that any more than ten yards? He was clad with armor. It says that his breastplate weighed 125 pounds. Most of y'all can't even pick that up, much less wear it. (laughs) He had a shield. He was fully clad for for war. And and who, how did David think it was a good idea (laughs) to face him with a slingshot? (laughs) What goes through a brother's mind? I'm going to face you with a... That's my best plan. And he's got a helmet on. Now, think about it. He's got a slingshot. Not the kind of slingshot that you do this to. The kind of slingshot you do this with. And the only place that slingshot is going to be effective is if it hits him in the head. Because any place else is just going to bounce off. Bruise him maybe, but just bounce off. Hit him in the shin, ouch. (laughs) It's got to hit him here for him to, here for him to fell him. If it hits him here, not so much. Gives him a little dizziness. Here to fell him. Which means he's got an inch diameter of, of leeway. That's it. That's it. And he can't get close enough whereby the dude can throw the spear. So he's got to be at least 50, 60 yards because if the spear is close enough, if he's close enough to throw the spear, he's got to be able to dodge it. So he's got to be 50, 60 yards away. And you thought you could do this and hit an area like this. And you had one shot. And you were confident. I said, tell me how you did that, dude. What was going through your brain? Well, obviously, he knew the Lord was going to help him. But there are so many miraculous things that we get to talk about with our family members when we get to go to heaven. It's going to be so cool. But it's not so much just about what heaven is. You get to have conversations with people here. You ought to be having substantive moments with people in the church about what destiny looks like and how you can help them fulfill theirs because there are Davids in the room. That's good, man. That's good. Amen. They're in the flock. Everybody's somehow they've been ignored by people just like David's daddy ignored him. When Samuel came to anoint one of his sons king, <laughs> that's really an embarrassing moment. Samuel comes to the house, said, Somebody, one of your sons is supposed to be king, bring him. And he looks at all the sons that Jesse brought and can't find the king. So here's Samuel thinking, 
I know what God told me. And I told him to bring his sons. And he brought them, but none of them were king. Should I do him the, the indignity of asking if he's got any more boys? I mean, I told him to bring his, all, all his sons. He, do you have any more? Yeah. What, what, what? wrong with you what was wrong is he didn't think David had any possibility of being a leader my point is that there are Davids in the flock there are great people to do great things right here you need to find them and pray with them you need to encourage them in their destiny family is always trying to figure out how in the world they can make their brother or sister better and when that happens rather than everybody trying to figure out how that person can make me better when the other happens everybody benefits when the former happens very few do. Family in heaven and earth derives his name, I pray, he says. And first of all, we might be fortified on the inside that God might grant you according to the riches of his glory, of which there is no lack, that he might grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened by his spirit on the inside, in the inner man. That there is a strength God wants you to, to, to recognize and tap into that goes beyond your natural ability. And sometimes you can't get to that strength until you find the, the end of yours. This is why God tends to let you go to the very end of your power and make you weak. Whereby you feel like, I can't go on. But that is just the beginning of finding God's strength that supernaturally provides for you when you've run out of yours. And that seems to be his standard operating procedure because you and your strength are weak. You in his strength are strong. So when you are weak, Paul says, I'm strong. God let Paul get to the end of himself that he might understand what the strength of God looked like. It's important that you understand what it means to be strengthened in the inner man by the Spirit of God to go beyond whatever limits you arrive at. And you will arrive at the place where you feel like you cannot take it anymore. And that's where you meet God at a different level. And you never stop arriving at those spots. You just continue to realize what your strength is not as you grow in God so that you might find out what his feels like in your life. And this is how you get stronger and stronger and stronger in the spirit. Where, you, where now you, it's no longer whether you are able to deal with your own stuff. It's how many people can you carry as you get to your destination. That's the strength of the inner man. I want you to know that. And it's a grant from God. It's not worked for. That God might grant you according to the riches of his glory. And let me tell you what happens. When you enter into that kind of strength, more glory comes on you. It just accompanies. That you might know who Christ is in an abiding way, point three. That you might realize the abiding Christ in a more significant way. That Christ may dwell in your heart by faith. Now, it doesn't mean that when you develop this strength, all of a sudden Jesus comes. He's saying this, Jesus is already inside, but sometimes you don't know it very much. But when you, when, you, when you tap into that strength, you understand that God has decided to abide with you, not just vacation with you, not just visit with you, not make you his short-term missions trip. 
that he really wants to hang with you long term. And I don't know why. I don't know why he chose. He thought it was a good idea to make bread his house. I can think of many more suitable places for God to live other than on the inside of me. Namely, because he has to inspire me to love him. Is anybody offended with the idea that you have that, that, that your friend or your spouse or your mother has to be told to love you? Yeah, I was with a couple. Well, it happens all the time. They were arguing one another, didn't like one another very much. And she was complaining that her husband never told her he loved her. So I, in the presence of both of them, said, okay, now tell her what you feel about her, and I want it to be this and this and this and this and tell her that. So he told her. And she sat there just stone face saying, well, you told him to tell me. It didn't come from his heart. Okay? How long have you been married? 23 years. Has he ever said any of those words to you? No. And like you're not happy now? You're, would you like to go another 23? You brought him here to get help. I'm giving him help. If you don't take my help, you'll get what you've always got. So please, even though it may not be exactly how you like it, take what you got because it's better than what you had. By the way, knucklehead husband, learn to say it on your own. You get them both. I mean, it's easy. You just open up the, the floodgates and let the rebukes flow. My point is this. Why isn't God offended that the only way we can love him right is if he helps us love him right? We can't even say the right thing. We can't worship unless he tells us how to do it. Unless he inspires us, unless he promotes the kind of generosity that's necessary to give back to his kingdom, we can't even give right. There is nothing that we can do spiritually that benefits him in any way unless he inspires us to do it. I can think of many, many reasons why God would not want to live on the inside of me, namely that nothing on the inside of me is good enough to be lived with. Unless he makes me good enough, there's no way he's ever comfortable with me. He is amazing that he has chosen me. And the more I realize that, the more I am, I am blown away by his generosity and kindness and patience and forbearance and tolerance that he lets Brett continue to make mistakes and doesn't leave him and just encourages him every time I blow it. He inspires me to repent so I can get back on track and I love him even more for it. He is amazing, which bleeds into the next point, the understanding of what it means to, to, to grasp the height and the depth and the length and the breadth of what it means for God to endure with us and love us. There is no way that we can measure it, but we're supposed to try because the trying helps us understand something about how our limits always begin to define his goodness. And if our limits define his goodness and we made him too small, but there's no way we can contain all of who he is. So he says, stretch anyway, even though you cannot get it, the more you stretch, the more you understand. So please explore what the breath is. Take it as high as you can. And then as the psalmist says, magnify me above that. Stretch it out in length. How much I care about you. And when you come to the end of that understanding, magnify it again. 
Whatever your definition of great is, get there. That's me. I'm greater. Whatever your definition of greater was, get there. Magnify me again. I'm greater than that. And the more you understand who he is, the more you worship. But he says all of this is attained by being rooted in love. That you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend these things. There is never a time where you need to be uprooted from love. If you're planted in it, you don't get out of it. The enemy can't pull you out of love. You should not be able to pull, pull yourself out of love. So if you are rooted in love, if that is the soil in which you find yourself, then everything that blossoms from your life, all the leaves that appear on your branches and the fruit that, that, that springs from your, your tree ought to reflect the stuff that you're planted in. So that when somebody offends you, the only thing they get is love back. Why? Because you've been rooted in it. When somebody makes you mad as a hornet and all you want to do is get back at them, love just springs out, pours out of your pores. You can't help it because you're rooted in it. That's the stuff you eat. That's the stuff you drink. That is your nourishment. You can't help but be loving. Root. And see, this is the only way family works. Otherwise, there's a line that you draw. And when people cross the line, you say, I'm done. I'm done. That's it. You cross the line, I'm done. I'm done. But see, we're supposed to love like God loved us. Anybody happy that God didn't draw a line with you? If he had, you wouldn't step over it. You just keep walking over it. A new one, step. It'd be a stroll down a fence lane that you do, that I do. He didn't do that. He just kept loving us, kept pursuing us. His love never failed. And the only way he can get us to act like him is if he roots us in that, plants us in love. We can't just breathe it. We can't just let it shower us every once in a while. We have to be planted in it. And if you're planted in it, then there is nothing that should ever take you out of love when you are dealing with somebody else. You always ought to have. That doesn't mean you don't talk truth. It doesn't mean that you don't call something as it should be. But it does mean that when you do speak truth, you do it in love. You're always considering somebody else's benefit before your own. Rooted and grounded in love. And it's amazing. When we are all rooted and grounded in love, as I close, <clears throat> there's something that happens. I have to, uh, I have to do some things in landscaping. Because um, I, I love my wife. And... I'm not a good landscaper. I could never make a living at it. I would starve. But I have to do some things minimally in my house. Many times I've had to replace things because Mama said she wanted a certain color to be reflected in the spring. And none of the plants I had there had that color. So I'd have to pull them up. Now, they'd been there a while. These are five or six-year-old plants. I planted them like this. They're now like this. And I've, I've cared for them because they, I need to make sure my house looks presentable. 
in the community. And so she wants it, so I have to pull them up. And you cut as much as you can of the stuff on top, but then you've got to pull them up by the roots. And I planted four or five of these things in a row to produce a hedge so that there would be something uniform in my front yard. I'm being as, as restrained as I possibly can <laughs> to not express my deep frustration in this moment. And so <clears throat> as I began to cut these things down and pull, I pulled. And, and, and I was pulling. And, and it, it started to come. It started to come, but it was stronger than I, I expected. Now, I'm not the, I don't have the greatest stature in the world. I get that. I'm, I'm, I'm not Charles Atlas. But I could pull this plant out the ground now. I could do that. And I had a spade. I was working it to try to get down deep. And I, was, and I said, something is wrong here. Something is wrong. And lo and behold, the plant wasn't by itself. See, the root systems had grown together. And so the plant next to it was saying, you ain't taking him. You are not taking him. We've grown together in this thing. You take him, you got to deal with me. And when you are rooted in love as family, you can't let somebody just be taken. And if they are taken, you feel it. You say, come back here. Let's work this thing. I don't care if you're offended, you don't leave me. I'm sorry. I repent for what I said, but we're hanging in here together. That's what he's talking. He's not talking to one person when he's talking to the church in Ephesus. He's talking to the entire people. All of them rooted and grounded in love. That's what it ought to feel like in a house. When somebody leaves, it ought to affect you. In that way, there's something that happens where all of us corporately are become more full of God than ever that you might be filled to all the fullness of God you begin to understand some things that are, un- that are ununderstandable that you might comprehend that which surpasses all knowledge the love of Christ and be filled up to the fullness of God you understand something about how much it takes to get somebody who's pulling away you understand something more about God And what it took for him to get you. And all of a sudden, the magnanimity of who he is grows in your mind. And you you say, I I get it. And it's bigger than I even know, but I get what I do know. Lord, you are amazing to me because I treated you just like they're treating me. And I'm trying to win them back and it's hard. You won me. Thank you. And you become more full of God. And when all of us do that together, when people come in, especially Jew and Gentile, black, white, Latino, Asian, and they feel this thing because you, you know Walmart is packed with just about every ethnicity on Sunday afternoon. You got every, every ethnicity is walking through the store. But you don't feel the same thing there that you feel here. How come? The building's no more holy just bricks. The seats might be a little bit more comfortable, but they don't bring any of the presence of God. Who does? You. So that when we all appear together, there is a fullness. We are literally fuller. No, 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 no. All my kids are down here. No, 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 no. We become more full. 
of his presence so that when folks come in and they spend five minutes in the worship, they go, wow, something's here. It's just instruments. It's just singers. They do it every place. But something different is here. And we're not any better than any other congregation. I'm just saying we're different than Walmart. This is family, spiritually. May we live it every day and be happy about the inconvenience of multi-ethnicity and what it causes because we get to pull something out and, and realize something that many do not. Let's pray. Daddy, I love you. Thank you for your goodness. Help us to be the kind of people who can manifest what family looks like in the earth. 